I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and to and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. So good to be back with you guys here at Resurrection Church. It is always a joy for me to come and join you here. Uh, I've mentioned it before, I think, being here, but I grew up in a little bit more of a liturgical uh, church and context, and I think every time I come back, it's, it's, it just brings back these sweet memories of being cultivated uh, in the faith and, and nurtured in that way. So uh, it is my pleasure to, to be back for sure. So you will have noticed that we're in Romans chapter 12 today. If you, can, if you can have a Bible or some kind of device where you can see a little bit of the context, we're going to dip into that a little bit, but it won't be detrimental for you if you, if you can't. Uh, following along in the bulletin will be okay as well. I'm going to say a word of prayer, uh, a brief one, and then we'll, we'll dive right in. 
Our Father in heaven, we come to you and ask that you would open up our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, many here will be familiar with the concept of the money-back guarantee. Commercials that guarantee us our satisfaction. But there really are very few true guarantees in this life. But one thing that is guaranteed is that people change. And if people change, that means we will change. At the Met, I have the privilege and responsibility of ministering to a lot of young adults. And time and time again, I find that young adults are in that stage of life where they're changing all the time. This season of university and college is really setting them up for a lot of the stability that they'll experience in life, but they're changing all the time. And whether you're here this morning and university seems like a a, a long time away, either a long time into the future or a a faded and distant memory, uh, you and I both know it. Everybody changes. And according to the Bible, there are really only two ways to change. C.S. Lewis echoes this in one of his books. He says, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you into something a little bit different than it was before. All your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature, either into a creature that's in harmony with God or else into one that's in a state of war and hatred with him. And here's, I think, the most alarming and powerful part of the quote. Each of us, at each moment, It's progressing to the one state or to the other. People change. We're either becoming more heavenly or more hellish. Those are the only two options. Those are the only two ways to change. And we see this come through right there in Romans 12 and verse 2. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. There they are again, these two ways to change. There's conformity to the world on the one hand, or transformation into increasing godliness and Christ-likeness on the other. And I wonder, which state do you find yourself progressing toward? Heavenliness or or hellishness? And how do we even begin to know? Well, in Romans 12, Paul hands us the key, if you like. He hands us the keys to the car, and... That car will take us to transformation. He gives us a defense mechanism. He equips us with the tools necessary to avoid going down the path of becoming indistinguishable from the world. He hands us the keys to experiencing mind-renewing transformation. He does so there in verse 1. And he says the most important tool for this is worship. Paul comes to the end of everything that he said in chapters 1 through 11, namely, as John Calvin summarizes it, that righteousness is to be sought from God alone, that salvation is to come to us from his mercy alone, and that all blessings are offered to us in Christ alone. He comes to us now with his appeal in chapters 12 through 16. Chapters 1 to 11 of Romans are all about what we're supposed to believe. And chapters 12 to the end of Romans is all about how we're supposed to behave. And it all begins with worship. 
If you let your eyes glance back, if you can, just one verse, Paul finished chapter 11 by praising God. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be glory forever. Amen. And he continues playing this same note, echoing this same chord that seems to resonate with worship here into chapter 12. He says, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In verse 1, Paul's calling us to worship God with our whole lives. He's calling us to whole life worship. Not just to worshiping when you come to Resurrection Church, not just to worshiping during the songs even, but with every aspect of who you are. He says, once we get the fact that one of the few guarantees in this life is to change, once we accept that, if we then want to progress toward godliness rather than worldliness, toward heavenliness rather than hellishness, it's going to mean that we'll have to worship God with our whole lives. We'll have the opportunity every single day to present our bodies as sacrifices to God or to something else. To devote our whole beings to the eternal or to the temporal. To give ourselves to the world we can see or to the God we can't see. We can worship God or self, Christ or stuff. And throughout the rest of the chapter he says, if we're going to do this, If we're going to worship God with our whole lives, it's going to mean three things. It's going to mean, if we're going to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God, as an expression of our spiritual worship, this is what it means. And the first thing, says Paul, is that worshiping God with our whole lives means that we will worship him with our minds. Verses two to three. I think there's a common misconception out there that says worship is a spiritual exercise and not so much an intellectual exercise. Our emotional experience is what determines fulfilling worship, not so much our intellectual experience. Feeling, well, that's spiritual. Thinking is academic. Eastern religion has really championed this idea of mindfulness and meditation in our experience of worship, which in and of itself is not bad. You just have to have the right definition, the right concept for what you're talking about when it comes to mindfulness and meditation. Eastern religion can tend to ironically define mindfulness as emptying the mind in order to become increasingly in tune with your breath or with the moment. Well, the Bible defines mindfulness as filling your mind with truth, and meditation is really just prayerfully pondering the words of Scripture until we embrace them at the very deepest level of who we are. And I I think from passages like Psalm 1, it's even fair to say that without meditation, it's impossible to experience deep and godly transformation. Stakes are high. We need to worship God with our minds. Verse 3 says that we're to think with sober judgment. We need to be mindful. This is why Ben and the elders of this church are so careful to pick songs that they have us sing here in this church because they want to encourage you to worship God with your minds. Paul says that if we're going to worship God with our whole lives, that means we need to think because thinking is a spiritual exercise. Thinking is a form of worship. Take a look with me again at verses 2 to 3. Notice all the thinking language there. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you might discern what is the will of God, 
For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. My wife, Lindsay, and I uh, just recently signed an agreement to purchase our first home. And we were able to move in just a couple of weeks ago. And the whole process has really helped us realize why moving is so difficult for everyone. In our case, moving was kind of daunting because we lived in that little rental home for as long as we had lived together as a couple in any place that we've lived. So when we started to prepare step by step to move to this new home that we actually own, we were preparing to move to a much more permanent uh, dwelling place as a family, which is wonderful and it's exciting, but it's also difficult. And it was difficult, at least in part, I think, because we had grown so comfortable in our rental property. Our lives had been conformed to that temporary home. Moving was a pretty tough process for us because at times I think we lost sight in our minds of the fact that we would one day move to our own place. Paul is warning us here in verses 2 to 3 that we should be living here in the world in our temporary home with a constant, mindful, thoughtful view toward our permanent residence. If we're going to be the kinds of people who are transformed into greater and greater Christ-likeness, rather than be conformed to the pattern of this world, to this age, this godless society, if we're going to be the kinds of people that move and progress more and more toward a state of heavenliness, if we're going to be the kinds of people who worship God with our whole lives, we need to consider where our minds camp out, where they reside. We need to be clear about where our minds dwell, where our thoughts go, how our minds think about God and his will and about ourselves and other people. One commentator says that this word discern, verse 2, has a sense of finding out the worth of something. What do our minds consider most valuable and worthwhile? I think it's helpful even now to sit with that question for a moment. Because what we treasure most deeply is always linked to what we ponder most frequently. So with our bodies in the world, our minds should be camped out in the word. Because the word is a kind of road map that points us to our final destination. And when we experience the transformation that's the result of this kind of mind renewal, we'll be able to discern God's will. We will begin to treasure, end of verse 2, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We'll become heavenly. Now, before we move on, says Paul, I, I do want to remind you not to get discouraged if this process doesn't happen overnight. Transformation is a process. The word he uses in the original here is the one where we get our word metamorphosis from, which gives us this picture of being transformed from caterpillar to butterfly, which is a really radical transformation if you think about it. It's a really delicate process. Because in that transformation, the same creature goes from living a really terrestrial, earthy life as a caterpillar, literally crawling around on the ground, to eventually flying. And Paul is challenging us to experience this kind of radical transformation by changing the way we think. Not to get caught up in our minds with stuff on the ground, because that's not where we'll end up. 
we worship God with our minds, we'll see our lives go from something terrestrial and flesh-driven to something beautifully spiritual and word-driven. So we owe it to ourselves to call into question, I think, what kinds of music we listen to, the kinds of TV shows we watch, the kinds of social media we look at and engage with. We owe it to ourselves to ask whether we're filling our minds with a perpetual kind of intellectual fast food menu or if we're filling our minds with a spiritually healthy diet. And it would be easy just to hear these questions that I'm asking. It's easy for me just to leave these things at the level of questions and not actually do anything about them. But if you and I know that if we stopped watching these things on Netflix or whatever it is that we stream things, if you know that if you stopped watching these shows that constantly invite us to live lives as if we're on some kind of sexually immoral merry-go-round with no consequences whatsoever, if we know that we stopped watching them or if we deleted our Instagram accounts or, God forbid, switched to a dumb phone, that it would put us on a faster track toward transformation, that, that it, would be, it would better prevent us from becoming indistinguishable from the world, then we can't just leave them at the level of questions. We need to cut them out of our lives. Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. This world will not quit being explicit. So we cannot allow it to drown out the word and its gospel so that it becomes some kind of subliminal message in our minds. Jesus Christ calls us in the Gospels to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all our strength, and all our minds. And so too Paul calls to worship God with all our lives. Second, from verses 4 to 13, Paul says that worshiping God with our whole lives means that we will worship him in the church. Now, I don't usually like to do this, but I thought at this point it would be helpful a little bit to tip my hand as a preacher and look at where Paul is going with his third point, namely that to worship God with our whole lives means that we won't only worship him with our minds and in the church, but also in the world. And the reason I want to tip my hand is because I think with the church here at the heart of the passage, it makes me wonder whether the church is the secret ingredient to worshiping God with our minds, verses 2 to 3, while we find ourselves in the world, verses 14 to 21. It makes me wonder whether worshiping God in the church is the way to worship God with our minds while we find ourselves in a secular society. It makes me wonder whether it's the way to prepare to move to our forever home while we're here in our rental property. Because if you think about it, the church is a kind of extension from heaven. While it's not perfect, a healthy, gospel-preaching church like this one is an outpost of our heavenly home. It's a sort of embassy that invites us to have a little taste of our home country week by week. Now what Paul's not saying is that the church is the only place where we worship God. But he is saying that it's a necessary place to worship God. I think we can tend to think that we work out there and we play out there and we do our lives out there and we come here to worship. That's not right at all. Rather, what Paul is saying is that if we're not worshiping here, we'll have trouble worshiping God anywhere. 
for not worshiping in the church, we'll have trouble worshiping God with our minds while we live in the world. Because here is where we hear the gospel. Here is where we cultivate and discern our spiritual gifts. Here is where we enjoy the means of God's grace with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Notice with me that when Paul was talking about worshiping God with our minds, the key way this plays itself out practically is in humility. What Paul is saying here is that worshiping God in the church is absolutely essential if we're going to live an intellectually humble life. In verse 3, Paul called us not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. And now Paul says that the church is like an on-ramp to a kind of intellectually humble highway, which is where we need to drive our lives if we're going to experience whole life worship. Because in the church, if we know in a really tangible, communal kind of way that we're dependent on others to live the Christian life, it'll be nearly impossible to become proud. And he uses this body illustration to make his point. Verse 4, if the church is like a body with many parts or members that all have different functions, it helps people who play the role of hands from thinking they have a more important role than those who play the role of feet. There's a codependency in the church, a beautiful diversity. He's saying that just as the human body is one whole, equipped with many parts, organs, limbs, and extremities, so the church is united even though it has many members. Though united through our faith, verse 3, the church maintains a wide diversity of function, a wide diversity of gifts. And therefore, embracing worship within the context of the local church will allow us to worship God with our minds while we're in the world, to be in the world without becoming like it, and thus worship God with our whole lives. And one of the key things we need in order to do this is to know what our gifts are. You can see Paul worked this out in verses 6 to 8. There's this fascinating account in the book of Acts, and uh, I think if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, you guys had spent some time in the book of Acts, like fairly recently as a church. So maybe you remember this. There's this account somewhere in there where there's this pretty big conflict that erupts in this church because the widows in the church were being neglected. They were being passed over when food was being distributed throughout the church. So people came to the leaders in the church and told them what was going on. And maybe you remember. Maybe you don't, so I'll ask. How do you think the leaders responded to this? How do you think they should have responded? Well, this is what they did. This is how they responded. They said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. It's a bit of a surprising response, actually. Because it sounds like they're saying to let the widows go hungry. That's not what they're saying at all. What they do say, in a sense, is that's not our job. It's not that we don't care about the widows getting fed, but that's not our role in this body. Therefore, the leaders say, pick out seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint for this duty. They don't dismiss the issue, but they know how God has called them to use their gifts. So they say, appoint these seven godly guys to take care of the widows, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. It's a fascinating example, isn't it, of eyes being eyes and hands being hands in the church. And we need to think this through. Because 
it establishes just how important it is for us to know how God has gifted us, to know how God has wired us, to know how God is calling us to serve him in his church. Listen, no matter how genuinely I want to serve, if I volunteered to do Jared Joe's job, that would hinder our experience of worship, not help it at all. I guarantee you. I can remember at one time before COVID at the Met, the worship team started playing and I was singing my little heart out. And the problem is I left my mic pack on. I didn't know it. So this wonderful saint sitting behind me, she kind of poked me and said, you know, you should really turn that off. Because when a foot tries to start functioning like a hand, it's going to cause major dysfunction in the body. And so too, Paul says, verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. This is worship in the church. Paul says, verse 6, some will prophesy in proportion to their faith. Some will serve, verse 7, with their gift of service. Others will teach with their gift of instruction. Others still, verse 8, will exhort with their gift of preaching. Some will contribute with generosity. Others will lead with zeal. And some will do acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Like with a body with eyes made to see and ears made to hear and hands made to hold and feet made to walk. The church works as one unit Many members gifted to worship and serve God their diverse functions. And this will mean that not everyone is made to stand behind the pulpit, and that's okay. This will mean that not everyone should stand up and sing in front of the congregation, and that's definitely okay. It means that not everyone is made to sit around a table and serve on an elder board, and that's okay. Because we're all called to worship in the church but not all in the same exact way. For as one body, we have many members, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Now, as important as gifts are, as giftedness is in the life of the church, in verses 9 to 13, Paul shows us that we shouldn't only worship God in the church with our giftedness, but we should worship God in the church with our godliness, too. Verse 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. How challenging is it just to read that? In the church, Giftedness is often what gets noticed, but godliness is what drives it. Giftedness is kind of like the exterior of the car, but godliness is the engine. And we need to make use of both if we're going to worship God in the church. Charles Spurgeon was once asked what it was about his ministry that made it so successful. And from the outside looking in, it would be fair to say that it was so successful because of how gifted a preacher Spurgeon was. But do you know how he answered the question? He said, my ministry is so successful because my people pray for me. Spurgeon's ministry was not ultimately successful because of how gifted Spurgeon was. It was because of how faithful his people were to pray for their pastor. 
It wasn't because of the pastor's giftedness, but it was because of the people's godliness. Chapter 11, and maybe you can look back at it this afternoon for a while for homework. Paul said that God saved the Gentile church in order to make Israel jealous. And I I do think that if the church in Canada is going to live in a way that will ever make the people around us who don't yet know Jesus jealous of what we have, our lives need to look something like verses 9 to 13. We need to love one another with brotherly affection. We can't be afraid to be appropriately affectionate with one another. Which means that we'll support one another in times of crisis. It means we'll gently rebuke one another in times of sin. It means we'll affirm one another when we see one another faithfully using their gifts. It means we'll get to know each other at the level someone might know their brother or sister. It means we'll let people in through the door of our heart. Here's one that gets me. Verse 10. Outdo one another in showing honor. I don't know about you, but I I do think that this is one that needs open heart surgery in the church right now. One only needs to check social media. When COVID hit, it kind of seems like the church started acting as if this command isn't in the Bible. But sure enough, there it is, verse 9, let love be genuine, verse 10, outdo one another in showing honor. And very quickly, verse 11, Paul talks about how Christians worship in the way that they work. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. How much more attractive do you think the church would be if there was no such thing as a lazy Christian? In verse 12, he says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and here's the dagger, be constant in prayer. I think I struggle enough to be frequent in prayer, let alone constant. But we are the body of Christ, and Paul is calling us to act like it. He's calling us to worship God with our whole lives, which will mean not only worshiping God with our minds, but worshiping God in the church. And finally, God calls us to worship him with our whole lives, which means that we will worship him in the world. Verses 14 to 21. This is Paul's call to take what we learn about Christ in here and apply it in the world out there. We need to realize that this is the film room and the world is the playing field. We need to realize, in a sense, that this is the gas station where we top up our empty worship tanks and the world is the open road. In one of his parables, Jesus tells a story about a farmer who went out into a field to sow seed. And as he did, some of it fell along the path and birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground and the sun came and scorched it. Other seeds fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it. Other seed fell into good soil and produced a whole bunch of grain. And when Jesus explains the parable, he says, the seed that fell on the rocky ground are those that hear the word. Perhaps they go to church on a regular basis. And they receive the word with joy. They might call themselves Christians, but when tribulation or persecution arises, they immediately fall away. And he said the seeds that fall among thorns, they hear the word. Perhaps they go to church on a regular basis. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things come in and choke out the word. 
And here in Romans 12, Paul is describing what the lives of those who are planted in the good soil really look like. He shows us the fruit in verses 14 to 21. He says, worshiping God in the world, verse 14, means blessing those who persecute us rather than cursing them. It means, verse 15, rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. Do you realize how hard that is? Deep down, I think we all have this sinful instinct to rejoice when others weep and weep when others rejoice. We're unhappily single. We see our best friend walk down the aisle to get married and this burning jealousy or deep sadness wells up within us because we wish it was us. Or a friend or family member gets an award or a job or a raise that we feel like we deserved and instead of rejoicing for them, we think something like, that should have been me. We can tend to see the loss of another as an opportunity for us to get a leg up on them. But worshiping God in the world means, verse 16, not to be proud, but to be willing to associate with the people of low position, to associate with the lowly. It means never to repay evil for evil, to live peaceably with all. It means never to avenge ourselves, but to leave it to the wrath of God. It means never to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. Sounds easy enough, right? Go therefore, resurrection church, and do likewise. No way. Just last night, I told a young adult that if we wanted to live sinlessly perfect, all we had to do was perfectly obey Romans 12. (laughs) That's a problem. On the surface, all this sounds impossible. How am I supposed to live like this? In and of ourselves, worshiping God in the world is impossible. In and of ourselves, we're all subject to conformity to the world. In and of ourselves, we are completely unable to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. In and of ourselves, we would have all the seed of the gospel choked out of our lives as we go about our business in the world. But the thing is, we're not by ourselves in this. I'm still pretty new to Canada, and so I remember the first time I saw people walking around with those poppies on their chest at the beginning of November, and I was a little bit confused. I didn't know what it was all about. Eventually, I found out that they were doing it for Remembrance Day, and I've actually come to appreciate Remembrance Day. It's about remembering the fact that we are free because somebody else paid the ultimate price to help us get here. And similarly, with the Spirit's help, by the mercies of God, by the grace given to us, we can remember We can look to the one who came into the world and actually did all of this perfectly. In a sense, the ultimate way to live the transformed life, the ultimate way to experience whole life worship is to look into the word of God, seeking to worship God with all of our minds, to look into the word of God alongside other believers in the church and remember the one person who was treated as if he was conformed to the world in order to transform his very own people. Jesus Christ, verse 14, while hoisted up on a cross, blessed those who persecuted him as he prayed for the forgiveness of those who nailed him there. Outside the tomb of his friend Lazarus, verse 15, Jesus Christ wept with those who weep. 
Jesus Christ, verse 16, lived in harmony with those around him to such a degree that he constantly associated himself with the lowly. The lowliest of sinners. He befriended people with a sexually broken past. He touched the unclean. He forgave a man who betrayed him three times. He came into the world with every right to be haughty. But instead, he associated with the lowly and he said, I came not to call the righteous with sinners. The way to transformation is to remember Jesus Christ on a cross, verse 17, refusing to repay evil with evil and bearing the wrath of God for me. When he rose again, Jesus proved that in the end, good can never be overcome by evil. So that we, with his spirit in us, can overcome evil with good. Friends, looking to Jesus all the time is the way to worship God all the time. Remembering him, verse 1, by the mercies of God, presenting his body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That is the only true way to worship God with our whole lives with our minds in the church and in the world. He is the only way to move from a state of hellishness toward a state of heavenliness because he came from heaven to earth to bring us from earth to heaven, that we might worship God with our whole lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you, by your spirit, would enable us to miraculously obey this passive command that we find in the second verse of Romans 12, to be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Lord, I pray that we would functionally live and pray as the psalmist would have us live and pray, saying, I give you praise, O Lord, for you have taught me your statutes. I pray, Lord, that we would fill our minds, that you might renew our minds so that we can worship you with our whole lives, with our minds in the church and in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.